Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 307. Today's big Bible question, what does it mean that God has not given us a spirit of fear? Well, happy Thursday, friends. As a heads up, beginning tomorrow and lasting for two or three days, we're going to make a slight change from the norm, and I feel like I need to explain it since it's a little bit related to Halloween. Now, I, myself, my wife, we're not big Halloween people around here. we got five kids. We've never celebrated Halloween very much. When the kids were younger, we were pretty adamant about it, and uh, even from time to time would get into a little bit of accidental conflict with this friend or that when our kids would say sort of anti-Halloween things, some of which we like uh, stuff, the kind of stuff we never told them to say, and uh, I don't think they even heard it from us or whatever, but they would ask why we don't do it. We would give some sort of biblical explanation and they would go tell their friends about it. And, you know, sometimes that would cause some tension. Uh, we're a little bit more on the relaxed side about it these days. We still don't really celebrate Halloween, but you might find some pumpkins mixed in with other fall decorations on the house. We might put on a costume or two, uh, not too dark or anything like that. And it's just not a big deal. Uh, I like candy though. That said, I'm not above using a holiday like this to reach people with the good news of Jesus. And I've become even more of that mindset since moving to California, moving away from Alabama where practically everybody's heard the gospel and there's a church on every street corner to moving to a place like California where it's not exactly the case that way. I find that it's good to use some of these cultural type things to broadcast the gospel to people and, you know, have a little bit of fun while doing it. I don't think that's anything that's uh, a biblical problem or whatever. So the last couple of years, my tact has been to use Halloween to broadcast the good news. And thus, the next two episodes of the show will, of course, feature all the Bible reading and Bible commentary, but it's probably going to be something like, the five spookiest stories in the Bible. Now, I'm going to be sharing those episodes with some friends, including some friends that may not know Jesus, hoping that a few of them hear the gospel through it. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book. Uh, it was actually for our, uh, our Halloween outreach at our church, uh, our trunk retreat. And I called the book Monsters in the Bible, published it on Amazon last year, wrote another spooky book that was kind of a follow-up to that. Both of them sort of uh, very biblical and evangelical with lots of Bible verses in their content, but both were written in sort of a way to be targeted to an audience that was interested in the paranormal and spooky sorts of things. And honestly, both both books have been fairly well-received by people on Amazon and, uh, uh, they've sold a lot and when, well, not a lot, but they've sold fairly well. And when I've had some giveaways on them, they've done pretty well with that. And my hope is that that kind of strategy has introduced some people, if not many, to salvation. So if you're a big spooky or Halloween kind of person, you might enjoy the next couple of episodes, but know that we're still going to be 100% focused on the Word of God. And if you're really, really opposed to Halloween, then hey, I completely understand I don't believe we should celebrate with or partner with the darkness or that sort of thing, but I'm just very open to using what this culture is talking about to point them to Jesus in any way, shape, or form from time to time, just like Paul did at Mars Hill in the book of Acts. So we will still be reading and discussing our daily Bible readings, of course, and uh, probably won't have too many ghosts and vampires on the show, but 
Um, it might be a little bit different. Anyway, our readings for today begin with 2 Kings chapter 10, which is itself a really, 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 really dark chapter. It's all about Jehu's murderous campaign against the family of Ahab. Now, the thing about Jehu, interesting character in the Bible, he is violent to an extreme sense, and it should probably be noted that God used Jehu to execute his judgment on Ahab's family, but Jehu was himself not pleasing to God in the way he lived his life. There's quite a bit of nuance there with Jehu. So if you read this and you think, oh my gosh, God is advocating mass murder. No, he's really not. God is judging Ahab through Jehu, but Jehu did not faithfully follow God. So pay attention to the nuance there over the next couple of chapters. We're also going to be reading Psalms 119, 97 through 120, Hosea chapter 2, and 2 Timothy 1. And our focus today will be, appropriately enough, on the issue of fear. Now, right off the bat, we need to differentiate between the fear of the Lord and all other fear. The fear of the Lord is a good thing, and it means fear. The meaning um, of the fear of the Lord was something we discussed pretty in detail on episode 94 of this show many, many, many years ago. Actually, many, many months ago. Uh, so if you want to find that, just come to our webpage, BibleReadingPodcast.com. I guess you can search for episode 94 or search for Fear of the Lord or just come to today's post and click the link because I put a link there for uh, for that episode and it might be a good refresher. The fear of the Lord is a good thing, the beginning of wisdom. Other fear, however, not so good because we're going to learn today that God has not given us a spirit of fear and very, very often tells us not to be afraid. So what does that mean exactly that God hasn't given us some spirit of fear? Well, let's read our passage and consider. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will, for the sake of the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly loved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with clear conscience, as my ancestors did, when I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, Remembering your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am convinced is in you also. Therefore I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald, apostle, and teacher. And that is why I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that all those in the province of Asia have deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. 
On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he diligently searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant that he obtain mercy from him on that day. You know very well how much he ministered at Ephesus. So looking at the context around Paul's statement that God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, it would seem that he's seeking to encourage Timothy in his stand for the faith, reminding Timothy that he comes from a believing mother and grandmother, and then exhorting him not to be ashamed about his testimony or witness of Jesus. And Paul points out that he himself is not ashamed of the gospel because he knows Jesus, and he has entrusted him to preserve eternal life and reward for him until the proper time. Now, in talking about fear, Paul uses the word dylia here, instead of the more common Greek word for fear, which is phobos. Dylia could be translated as timidity or even cowardice, and I think cowardice might actually be a pretty appropriate word here because uh, dylia it seems to be a stronger word than the normal Greek word for fear, which is, of course, phobos. And so this exhortation of Paul's to Timothy is really quite strong. And, and it kind of makes you wonder, is Timothy going through a timid period or a fearful period? Maybe he sees Paul in jail. He's wondering if the same thing is going to happen to him. We don't know. And, and that any of that is just speculation and reading between the lines. But it is a strong exhortation to not give in to fear. And it sort of reminds me of Jesus' question to the disciples in Mark 4 after he had calmed the storm that they obviously were expecting to kill them. Mark 4, 39-40, Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Then he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, it would seem in that passage that fear is sort of an opposite of faith. And thus, it would come as no surprise to us that Jesus commands his followers and those he interacts with over and over and over again not to be afraid. For instance, Luke 8.50 says, When Jesus heard it, he answered him, Don't be afraid, only believe, and she will be saved. Luke 12.31, Seek his kingdom and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. Matthew 10, 26. Therefore, don't be afraid of them, since there's nothing covered that won't be uncovered and nothing hidden that won't be made known. Matthew 10, 31. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Matthew 17, 7. Jesus came up and touched them and said, get up. Don't be afraid. Matthew 28.10, Jesus told them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. And look, that's only a little bit of it. There's many other passages I we could quote from where Jesus tells his followers, disciples, or people asking him questions to not be afraid. Well, God the Father also commands people over and over again in the Old Testament not to be afraid. Genesis 15.1, The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Genesis twenty six twenty four. I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Genesis forty six three. These are all spoken to different people. God said, "I am the God of the God. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there." Joshua one nine. Haven't I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. 
Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And on and on and on and on. Again, do not be afraid is one of the most often repeated commands of God in the Bible, if not the single most often repeated command of God in the entire Bible. So we are told not to fear. Now, how can we do this? Well, back to what Jesus said. Walking in fear is essentially the opposite of walking in faith. To move away from fear, we need to move towards God and his word. And if we are now somehow moving away from God and the following of his word and the leadership of his spirit, then honestly, friends, we're going to be moving in the direction of fear. It sort of all depends on what your focus is on. If your focus is on COVID or financial troubles or job troubles or the future or or politics, what's going to happen after the election, all of that. If that's where your focus is, friends, you're moving towards fear, and I'm moving towards fear. I think I've told you before. I'll tell you again if I haven't. Um, in the early days of the pandemic, like I did so much research and focusing on it that I just honestly got into my head, and it caused all this fear to well up. I'm not normally terribly afraid of of getting sick or things like that. I don't want my kids to get sick, but. Me, myself, not a big fear of mine, but man, the more I looked at coronavirus, the more I got afraid. And and I'm not telling you to stick your head in the sand. That's dumb. It's ignorant. I'm telling you I would spend hours a day reading about it, and that's a little too much because you know what? I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to go out and solve the problem. I think we should be well-informed. I think we should listen to scientists and doctors. Absolutely. But over-focusing on something is going down the road of fear. We need to over-focus on God. And I realize that's quite simplistic, but it is also deeply and completely true. To overcome fear requires faith. Faith comes from hearing and obeying the word and being close to God. So here's Pastor Tim Keller from New York City on that dynamic between fear and nearness to God. And he says this, The reason we have a spirit of fear is because as we move away from God, we move into fear. As we move away from God, we discover more and more fear. The Bible says, if you have decided that the tenets of religion cramp your style financially or sexually or professionally and you move away from God, what you're doing is you will move into a spirit of fear. You will be characterized by a spirit of fear. Fear comes from saying to God, I don't need you. For example, you move away from God, a human being has an experience of radical finitude. You sense your finiteness. And Keller says it was interesting more than a year ago when the San Francisco earthquake happened one night on one of the news programs, I heard a psychologist interviewed. Whoever asked the psychologist the question was trying to help people deal with the stress and trauma of the earthquake. Obviously, this this sermon was preached, I don't know, right around 1990 or so. Somebody said, it seems like our ancestors just didn't used to fall apart when it came to disasters. Our ancestors used to bury half their children before they reached maturity. They took troubles and tragedies in stride. Now, why is it when we have a tragedy, a tragedy, everybody has to run on in and help everybody because they feel so traumatized? And Keller says the psychologist was marvelous in his frankness. He said, well, think of it this way. First of all, our ancestors believed that they were small in a big universe that was controlled by God. They knew God, they prayed to God, and they didn't have this same sense of being powerless. For example, our, for our ancestors, this life was a small part of reality. 
You lived here for a while, then you died and you went into heaven. Then the psychologist turned and said, but for us moderns, this life is all we have. Not only that, we're the only ones running the world. When something like this comes along, we feel so powerless and helpless, and it engenders tremendous trauma. Obviously, this psychologist was an atheist, but he was laying bare the situation we're faced with. And Keller says, I was amazed at his frank frankness. Why is it today we will sue, we get into lawsuits over things a generation ago, People just considered, well, that's just part of the way life is. Because a generation or two ago, we believed we were small. We believed we only lived here for a while, and then there was eternity where we were small, and it was this great big world. Today we believe, no, there must be a human problem behind every imperfection. We are our masters. We are in charge. And as a result, whenever tragedies hit, we are absolutely traumatized. There's no way we can deal with tragedies and troubles the way our ancestors could. The psychologist was right. The more you move away from God, the more you feel that finiteness. The more you move away from God, the more you feel fear, powerlessness, and helpless like somebody in a place that is way too big for you. Fear comes from the purposelessness that comes when you move away from God. So friends, are you wrestling with fear right now? Know this, God has not given that spirit of fear to you. That is not a gift from God for you. If you're wrestling with fear right now, thing number one to look at is where is your walk with God? Where is your time in the word? Where is your faith? Where is your focus? And it's very likely, it's very likely that your focus is on something other than pursuing the Lord. The antidote for fear is to walk in the fear of the Lord and the pursuit of the Lord and to walk in the faith that comes from his word and obeying it. So may the Lord give you insight into whatever fears you're struggling with right now and may he draw you to himself and cure your fear as he does it. We continue. Second Kings chapter 10, verse 1. Since Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria, Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders, and to the guardians of Ahab's sons, saying, Your master's sons are with you, and you have chariots, horses, a fortified city, and weaponry. So when this letter arrives, select the most qualified of your master's sons, sit him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. However, they were terrified and reasoned, Look, Two kings couldn't stand against Jehu. How can we? So the overseer of the palace, the overseer of the city, the elders and the guardians sent a message to Jehu. We are your servants and we will do whatever you tell us. We're not going to make anyone king. Do whatever you think is right. Then Jehu wrote them a second letter saying, If you are on my side and if you will obey me, bring me the heads of your master's sons at this time tomorrow at Jezreel. All seventies of all seventy of the king's sons were being cared for by the city's prominent men. When the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered all seventy, put their heads in baskets, and sent them to Jehu at Jezreel. When the messenger came and told him they have brought the heads of the king's sons, the king said, Pile them in two heaps at the entrance of the city gate until morning. The next morning, when he went out and stood at the gate, he said to all the people, You are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him. But who struck down all these? Know then that not a word the Lord spoke against the house of Ahab will fail. For the Lord has done what he promised through his servant Elijah. So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, 
all his great men, close friends, and priests, leaving him no survivors. Then he set out and went to Samaria. On the way, while he was at Beth Aked of the shepherds, Jehu met the relatives of King Ahaziah of Judah and asked, Who are you? They answered, We're Ahaziah's relatives. We've come down to greet the king's sons and the queen mother's sons. Then Jehu ordered, Take them alive. So they took them alive and then slaughtered them at the pit of Beth Aked. Forty-two men. He didn't spare any of them. When he left there, he found Jehonadab, son of Rechab, coming to meet him. He greeted him and then asked, Is your heart one with mine? It is, Jehonadab replied. Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and Jehu pulled him up into the chariot with him. Then he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he let him ride with him in his chariot. When Jehu came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained from the house of Ahab in Samaria until he had annihilated his house according to the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. Then Jehu brought all the people together and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little while, but Jehu will serve him a lot. Now therefore summon to me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants and all his priests. None must be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing will not live. However, Jehu was acting deceptively in order to destroy the servants of Baal. Jehu commanded, Consecrate a solemn assembly for Baal. So they called one. Then Jehu sent messengers throughout all Israel, and all the servants of Baal came. No one failed to come. They entered the temple of Baal, and it was filled from one end to the other. Then he said to the custodian of the wardrobe, Bring out the garments for all the servants of Baal. So he brought out their garments. Then Jehu and Jehonadab, son of Rechab, entered the temple of Baal. And Jehu said to the servants of Baal, Look carefully to see that there are no servants of the Lord here among you, only servants of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed 80 men outside, and he warned them, Whoever allows any of the men I am placing in your hands to escape will forfeit his life for theirs. When he finished offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guards and officers, Go in and kill them. Don't let anyone out. So they struck them down with the swords. Then the guard and the officers threw the bodies out and went into the inner room of the temple of Baal. They brought out the pillar of the temple of Baal and burned it, and they tore down the pillar of Baal. Then they tore down the temple of Baal and made it a latrine, which is a bathroom, which it still is today. Hooray. Hooray, it's not in the Bible. Verse 28. Jehu eliminated Baal worship from Israel, but he did not turn away from the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit, worshiping the gold calves that were in Bethel and Dan. Nevertheless, the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my sight and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, four generations of your sons will sit on the throne of Israel. Yet Jehu was not careful to follow the instruction of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins that Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. In those days, the Lord began to reduce the size of Israel. Hazael defeated the Israelites throughout their territory from the Jordan eastward, the whole land of Gilead, the Gadites, the Reubenites, and the Manassites from Aror, which is by the Arnon Valley, through Gilead to Bashan. The rest of the events of Jehu's reign, along with all his accomplishments and all his might, are written in the historical record of Israel's kings. Jehu rested with his ancestors and was buried in Samaria. His son Jehoiahaz became king in his place. The length of Jehu's reign over Israel in Samaria was 28 years.
Psalm 119, 97 through 120. How I love your instruction. It is my meditation all day long. Your command makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is always with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, because your decrees are my meditation. I understand more than the elders, because I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path to follow your word. I have not turned from your judgments, for you yourself have instructed me. How sweet your word is to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. I have solemnly sworn to keep your righteous judgments. I am severely afflicted. Lord, give me life according to your word. Lord, please accept my free will offerings of praise and teach me your judgments. My life is constantly in danger, yet I do not forget your instruction. The wicked have set a trap for me, but I have not wandered from your precepts. I have your decrees as a heritage forever. Indeed, they are the joy of my heart. I am resolved to obey your statutes to the very end. I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your instruction. You are my shelter and my shield. I put my hope in your word. Depart from me, you evil one, so that I may obey my God's commands. Sustain me as you promised, and I will live. Do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Sustain me so that I can be safe and always be concerned about your statutes. You reject all who stray from your statutes, for their deceit is a lie. You remove all the wicked on earth as if they were dross from metal. Therefore, I love your decrees. I tremble in awe of you. I fear your judgments. Hosea chapter 2. Call your brothers my people and your sisters compassion. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the promiscuous look from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and expose her as she was on the day of her birth. Pause. He's talking about Israel here, not about Hosea's literal mother. I will make her like a dessert a desert and like a parched land, and I will let her die of thirst. I will have no compassion on her children because they are the children of promiscuity. Yes, their mother is promiscuous. She conceived them and acted shamefully for she thought, I will follow my lovers. The men who give me food and water, my wool and flax, my oil and drink. Therefore, this is what I will do. I will block her way with thorns. I will enclose her with a wall so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will think, I will go back to my former husband, for then it was better for me than now. She does not recognize that it is I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the fresh oil. I lavished silver and gold on her, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my new wine in its season. I will take away my wool and linen, which were used to cover her nakedness now, I will expose her shame in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her from my power. I will put an end to all her celebrations, her feasts, new moons, and Sabbaths, all her festivals. I will devastate her vines and fig trees. She thinks that these are her wages that her lovers have given her. I will turn them into a thicket, and the wild animals will eat them. And I will punish her for the days of the bales, to which she has burned incense. She put on her rings and her jewelry and followed her lovers, but she forgot me. This is the Lord's declaration. Therefore, I am going to persuade her, lead her to the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. Therefore, there I will give her vineyards back to her and make the valley of Achor into a gateway of hope. There she will respond as she did in the days of her youth, as in the day she came out of the land of Egypt. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration. 
you will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. They will no longer be remembered by their names. On that day, I will make a covenant for them with the wild animals, the birds of the sky, and the creatures that crawl on the ground. I will shatter bow, sword, and weapons of war in the land and will enable the people to rest securely. I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. On that day, I will respond. This is the Lord's declaration. I will respond to the sky, and it will respond to the earth. The earth will respond to the grain, the new wine, and the fresh oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her in the land for myself, and I will have compassion on Lo-Ruhema, and I will say to Lo-Ami, you are my people, and he will say, you are my God. Amen, and let it be so. Good day to you, friends. May the peace of the Lord guard you and guide you, and may he help you overcome fear as you dwell close to him. Good day and Godspeed.